Tonight on Farage, we discuss Baby P's mother is out on parole despite a government appeal. We ask, how can this be right? 40 years since HMS Sheffield sunk. Have the French told us the full truth about those Exocet missiles? A debate will be had between the taxi trade and an academic report suggesting the knowledge is now old hat and that Uber should be able to use the bus lanes. That should be fun. And talking pints will continue the debate about Hunter Biden's laptop and why social media and mainstream media in the USA decided to cancel any news about it. Good evening. Back in 2007, the country was deeply shocked by the death of Baby P, a young 17-month-old boy, repeatedly abused. Again and again, social workers looked at the case, did not take sufficient action, and in the end, he was dead. There were, of course, court cases, and his mother, who'd allowed this horrific abuse to take place, went to prison. Yet in 2013... The parole board saw fit to let her out. But she breached the terms of that parole and was soon put back in. A few weeks ago, the parole board once again decided that Tracy Connolly was fit to go outside living under parole conditions. This was appealed against by the Justice Secretary Dominic Raab, and in this he was supported by the Labour Party. But the parole board have decided that she is out, she will be out on on parole within a few weeks. Weeks Now, without going into the absolutely grisly details of the horrific abuse and ultimately death of baby P, I have to ask a question. How can this be right? Is it likely that she may have another baby, that this could all happen again? And we think of case after case, maybe slightly different. Colin Pitchfork, for example, serious sexual abuser of children, let out on parole and within two months was found once again to be attempting to prey on underage victims. I have to say, I think this is wrong. I do agree with both Dominic Raab and the Labour Party. I think the parole board uh, needs a serious looking at. But let me know your thoughts, please. How can this be right? Farage at GBNews.uk. Well, joining me is somebody who knows far more about this subject than I do, and I'm sure many of you at home do. And, and Paula, um, you uh, in, in yourself, uh, Paula Hudgel, you yourself adopted um, a young boy who had been so horrendously abused, he'd finished up having to have his legs amputated. Um, tell me what you make of the parole board's decision, not just today, but going right back to 2013. Good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Thanks for having me on. Um, yes, we are. We we know only too well what this is like. Um, we've uh, adopted a little boy that lost both his legs at the hands of his birth parents. Um, absolutely appalled and shocked that the parole board have um, allowed her again to uh, walk free. In theory, um, she was given a chance before and um, broke her bowel condi- uh, remand conditions. Um, it just shows how important Tony's law that was um, had royal assent last year, uh, last week. It, it, how important that is, um, because. Would you, would you please, 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 Paula, please explain that to the audience? Okay, so um, 
in Tony's case, uh, both his parents were sentenced to the maximum that they could be because he survived, which was 10 years. Since then, back in 2018, I've campaigned tirelessly with my MP and had the full backing of Dominic Raab uh, recently as well to increase sentences. So as in the case of baby P, where the uh, maximum for causing or allowing the death of a child was only 14 years, from now it could be life imprisonment. And that shows that actually Tony's law was needed to be brought in way, way before um, now, um, because obviously her case, it would have shown then that she could have been sentenced to life. Yeah, and I'm sure that actually gets wide, broad public support. But when it comes to the parole board, what do you think needs to be done there? I agree with Dominic Raab. There needs to be a complete overhaul of the parole board. Um, uh, the, the fact that she broke her licence conditions last time, you know, indicates mm. that yeah. she isn't fit to, to be out. No, I think that's absolutely right. But I mean, surely the reforms that we need, and, and, and this is something I think where both sides of the House of Commons could actually come together and agree. Do we need, I mean, is it different people we need, Paula, on the parole board? What is it we need to get a parole system that is actually in touch with where public opinion is? Yeah, um, I, I do think that there needs to there needs to be specialist departments. I think on these probably these parole boards, you know, child cruelty is the worst offences that can ever be committed. You know, it's the most vulnerable in society, mm. and the public outcry shows that as well. I mean, how can somebody be so evil, so wicked to harm their own child and cause the death of their child through these circumstances? That actually, yeah. you know, it's all well and good sitting on these parole boards but that there needs to be a lot more especially in the child court cases no i agree with you and paula can i say well done for the campaigns that you fought uh, you've stood up very very bravely in doing this and i hope as i say that both sides of the house of commons get together and really really will never eliminate terrible things from happening but i do think no, that the punishment no, really no, ought just... to fit the crime can I just say, we Go are on. actually pushing for the child cruelty register, which will also help in these cases when they are released, that, you know, they will remain on a register similar to a sex offenders register, because at the moment there isn't one that stands as such. No, well, there's a lot, lot more work to do. You've made a very good start. And I thank you for coming on and joining me tonight on GB News. Thank you. The economy. Thank you very much indeed, Paula. The economy. Well, it's clearly very important. The Bank of England put rates up today. They're back up to 1%. And for those of you with very big mortgages, that will be of concern. But I have to say that this is pretty depressing. The Monetary Policy Committee have put out some e economic projections for the next few years. They see inflation getting up to quite near 10% this year, staying next year at pushing 7%, which is the first time we've heard such a pessimistic inflation expectation, though I'm not in the least bit surprised. They think it might start to go down again in 2024. They see unemployment, which is very, very low, but they see it rising over the next two years from 3.6% to 4%. 0.6%. You may say that's not too much. But when you look at all the other measures here, 
Interest rates, they anticipate going up to 2%. And GDP slowing to almost nothing. This is from the Monetary Policy Committee's own projections published today. So what we have is an acceptance now through the Bank of England and elsewhere that we're going to go on for two years with inflation and with very, very low growth indeed. And frankly, it isn't good enough just to sit here and expect you out there paying the bills and paying the taxes just to accept it. And we really do need some fresh initiatives, I think, to help us get the economy of this country back onto its feet. And yes, I think energy is one of the keys to that. Now, yesterday, I mentioned the fact that it was 40 years to the day that HMS Sheffield had been hit and sunk. It was a tremendous shock to the nation 40 years ago. And there's been a lot of publicity over the last couple of days about the missiles that were used. Exocet missiles, French manufactured missiles used by the Argentinians. And suggestions on a level I've not heard before that these missiles may well have had a kill switch. And the idea of a kill switch, of course, is supposing your weapons fall into somebody else's hands, you need to have a way of disabling them. And people who were cabinet ministers at the time in 1982, most notably Norman Tebbit and David Meller, speaking out, accusing the French of not frankly telling us the truth, demanding answers. I just wonder whether 40 years on, it's appropriate to have this debate. I also wonder about the truth or otherwise of the so-called kill switch. Well, somebody who wrote a book about all of this with HMS Sheffield on the front cover was spy writer and intelligence expert Nigel West. Good evening. Good evening. You saw the words of Tebbit, uh, of Meller, uh, deeply critical, uh, the former second-in-command of HMS Sheffield on the front pages of some of the newspapers today, uh, Charles Moore at the weekend in the Telegraph, you know, kind of saying, look, uh, we need to know the truth about this. So let's just get the facts right about this. Well, let me explain about the Exocet AM39, which is the air-launched variant. So we knew, and the French knew, that they had supplied five of these missiles. And in order to deploy uh, an Exocet, it it has to be married up to the avionics of the Super Etendard aircraft. The French had never done that, and they believed that the Argentines were not capable of marrying up the missile to the aircraft in the first place. Second place, it's the deployment of the Super Etendard aircraft. It doesn't have the range to get anywhere near the task force, so it was going to have to be refuelled mid-air. By, and the Argentines only had two KC-135 uh, refuelling tankers. So the chances of this attack taking place were extremely limited. And let me just explain but how... It still, but it still happened. It, it happened, but let me explain how Exocet works. Exocet is flown to about 40 miles of the target by the Super Etendard aircraft, assuming that the avionics problem had been solved, which the Argentines did solve, which we didn't know and the French didn't know. The Exocet is then uh, brought up to a height to be able to see the target, and then the, uh, the bomb is dropped itself, the, Arge- the uh, Exocet is dropped, and it flies at a uh, at an altitude of about 15 feet, mm. sea skimming. It then comes up 
very briefly in order to have a second look at the target. Now, it's been locked on to the target by the Super Etendard aircraft. The first time that it pops up, it sends a radar signal in order to be able to identify the target and then drops down again to its 15 feet uh, right. altitude. The countermeasure for this is uh, two things. One is electronic countermeasures, which means that when the uh, Exocet pops up to have a look at its target, it is confused either electronically or by chaff. That's the, the aluminium foil that is, that is deployed. But as we a, hadn't as expected as this to happen, had we? We had not expected any of this to happen. No. And uh, the important thing is that the French did supply all the uh, avionic frequencies to the British at the request of Mrs. Thatcher, who asked uh, Francois okay. Mitterrand to supply the information. His brother was uh, chairman of Aero Spatial. So he supplied all the frequencies, which meant that our electronic countermeasures should have been able to deal with this if the threat had existed. It wasn't appreciated. But worst of all, I'm afraid the blame lies with HMS Sheffield because they had all their kits switched off at the time. And the Exocet went straight past two other uh, vessels that were part of the Royal Naval screen that, were that uh, evaded the Exocet. And the Exocet then went and hit Sheffield, which was a sitting target, completely unprepared for the attack. And what about this concept of a kill switch? So the, the I mean, that, because that seems to be, and we're 40 years on, and I'm yeah. surprised we've not had as fierce a debate around this since the time of the Falklands War. What about the kill switch? There were a, there were a lot of rumours at the time about the French uh, not cooperating, about French engineers being in Argentina. There was no kill switch. And if you think about it, the idea that uh, we could be supplied with some kind of equipment that would neutralize a weapon that had already been fired toward it, it, its target is, is just so improbable. So is this unnecessary French bashing? Did the French yes. actually do the right thing in the end? The, the French helped, uh, helped us enormously. There were only five Exocet AM39 air-launched variants. The other Exocets that we uh, dealt with um, were engineered by the Argentines themselves and so that they were surface-launched but they were put on the back of a truck and fired once okay. they'd actually got to East Falkland. I mean, this was an extraordinary series of events. Highly improbable that the Exocets could ever have been fired by the Argentines, but they achieved that. But they that. were. Very interesting. And just, just, just to tell you something really important, no Exocet missile has ever detonated on its target. It, the Sheffield sank, but it sank because the Exocet... Um, the kinetic energy of the missile hitting the, uh, the vessel plus the fuel in the Exocet was what created the damage and it took eight days for the Sheffield to sink. Yeah. The truth is that Exocet is an unreliable weapon and has never, the warhead has never detonated uh, in the combat scenario. Well, you see, there you are, folks. There's Nigel West telling you, don't believe all you read in the newspapers. In a moment, we're going to have a debate. Yes, we are, between the black taxi and an academic think tank who believe the knowledge is old hat, unnecessary. We can do it all on GPS these days. And the Uber should be able to use the bus and taxi lanes. I think we're on for a very spirited debate in just a moment. Your thoughts on the parole board overruling 
the government's objection and the mother of baby P being released in a few weeks' time. Nelia says to me, it makes me wonder, who sits on these secretive parole boards? Are they all a bunch of wokies? I don't know the answer to that. Be good if we did, I guess. Mike says, our justice system is like everything else, faulty, broken and illogical. We urgently need a new Thatcher to kick everything up in the air and remake it. The mother of baby P should do her full term in prison. Yes, but arguably it's too short a term anyway. And that was a debate we were having a few moments ago. Barbara says she should never see light of day. Edwina says it should be a term of parole if it is allowed, if, well, if she's sterilised. Well, Edwina, that's a strong opinion. Uh, I do suspect it would actually have some support. And on Twitter I get, these are children. Every parent must be in disgust at this parole board, that they could even recommend such a decision. But I suspect we all know where the public is on this. Now, the Black London Taxi, an iconic symbol of London. Indeed, when you come into Heathrow Airport from other parts of the world, amongst the symbols of our great country, you see Black London cabs. So it's an image that means something. And our taxi drivers have to do something called the knowledge, which is laborious, incredibly hard work. They have to know virtually every nook and cranny of London. It takes them, I think, about four years of real hard work to get to that standard. And that's why you know, we have had, I think, over the years, by far the best taxi drivers of any city in the world, albeit... They're quite opinionated if you've got a well-known face. But other than that, I always thought they were great. But of course the world changes, the world moves on. We all know that and understand that. We've always had, or for many, many years, licensed minicabs. But it's the advent of Uber, I think, that has thrown the whole thing up into the air. Now, a report has been issued by the free market Adam Smith Institute. It suggests that the knowledge is now outdated. We've got ways, we've got all sorts of, <coughs> excuse me, means of using sat-navs to get around the capital. And their other suggestion is that Uber and firms like this should be able to use the bus and taxi lanes. And the author of the report, Maxwell Marlow, joins me. I'm also joined by Steve McNamara, General Secretary of the Licensed Taxi Drivers Association. Gentlemen, good evening. So, Maxwell, um, let's just think about this. So let, let me just recall with you an uber experience i had so i was in central london wanted to get back to the outer london kent borders uh, an uber was ordered for me i got in the back the guy did not speak any english i mean no english he clearly had my postcode a rural postcode and sat nav in rural areas is notoriously useless and he started taking me in completely the wrong direction and we're going along the Thames, heading out through the Blackwall Tunnel. And it's a massive loop round from a journey. And I was sort of raising my voice and, you know, kind of knocking on the But I, I couldn't make any connection with him at all. I did think about jumping out of the lights. Um, I've also had Uber experiences that have been very, very good. Uh, but when it comes to actual knowledge of getting around London, Uber can't compete with a black cab driver, can it? Well, you should really speak to a representative of Uber to take up your complaint. And uh, I did try to come to the studio with a black cab, but none was available. So um, there are different ways of looking at this. But there's an app, isn't there? You know, where you can get. I mean, Free you can now use an app. Would be, would be the app for. Uh, but you can use an app for black cabs as well as, as you I can said, use Free an now, app. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. so, and those do exist. Yeah. But 
tried ringing them up, nowhere to be seen. This is, it's not the only issue, but we do have a real fall in the number of black cabs in, in, in London. I think the uh, TfL put the numbers at a fall of 11% over the past 10 years, whereas the number of private hire vehicles have gone up 40% in the past right. 10 years. So you're arguing there is a demand supply issue, and, and fine, we can talk about that. But my point to you was that when you get into a black London cab, you know, he or she generally know where to go because they, because they put the hard yards in. Can a sat-nav compete with that? I think it can. I think we've seen a really... Well, you made the point about the rural areas. We've seen mm. a really good rollout of 4G and 5G across rural areas, um, which has helped basically supply this. We have great apps like Waze, which is a community-led mm. um, uh, app which basically puts together thousands of pieces of knowledge about slow, slow roads construction site, red traffic lights, green traffic lights, all across London, simultaneously. The knowledge just can't compete with that. No matter how much money you spend and how much you spend... Steve, I mean, there is a point here, um, you know, that that Waze actually is pretty good. Nigel, the the, the reality is these sat-navs are quite good, but the bottom line is if you leave here this evening and you're driving yourself, you don't turn it on because you know where you're going. And that's why we don't need a sat-nav, because we know where we're going. (laughs) And and, and, and sat-navs are are a poor substitute for the knowledge. But I think the wider issue here is, uh, I mean, Maxwell tells you that you need to take it up with Uber. Of course, one of the questions is, who sponsors the Adam Smith Institute? Um, and I think we all know the answer to that is Uber funded this report and it's an Uber published document and it's very interesting that, that some of the terminology that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make it wrong no it, it doesn't but people yeah. tend to fund things they want to say what they want to say don't they yeah, I get uh, that. and of course the, the, some, of the, some of the terminology he uses in there he's telling us about the benefits of dynamic pricing well dynamic pricing is, is what the, the general public knows as surge pricing and so what happens when it gets a bit busy they charge you more I mean the prime example was the London bridge attacks my members are going there to take people home for nothing mm. and uber a surge pricing them and charging them 10 times normal fare that is what happens so we we either put all our eggs in in, in a, 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 a a 70 billion dollar american company that's never made a penny and keeps losing money by the way or we 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 recognize that licensing in the uk sorry because part of maxwell's report is that we should virtually scrap all licensing rules and regulations and it should be a free but he says he couldn't get a black cab well i managed to get one quite (coughs) easily i walked out of my office in southern no well (laughs) i walked out of my office in southern and put my hand up look if i want to go to the theater on saturday night to to see the latest whatever the trendiest western show is i'm not going to see it but that's not an argument for having a theater on every street corner so that we can all go on a saturday evening the bottom line is there are issues with supply and demand on any service but your argument really here is you know where you're going that makes you a better and safer driver than somebody following us absolutely and of course the key issue is we have got the best safety record in the world 38 percent of london's taxi fleet is now electric We've got members investing uh, £3.5 million a week in buying 50 electric cabs to provide the only wheelchair accessible, the only fully disabled access vehicles yep. anywhere in the world. London has not just got the best cab service in the world, it's got the safest and the greenest. And why would we want to change that? Now, when it, comes, when it comes, I think the most controversial part of your report is this. You're suggesting that Uber or other firms like Uber should be able to use the bus and taxi lanes in London. I mean, presumably, if that happened, it would clog 
those lanes up to the point where it might be quite difficult for the buses to move around. Certainly a valid point, but at that point I kind of say, well, why should the taxis have priority over the Ubers? And if I can very quickly say... Let me just answer that very quickly, because they give a superior service and that's what you're paying for. If that were the case, Nigel, they wouldn't be, you know, falling in in demand. Whereas, as we we, uh, we had a great piece of reporting a few months ago from from the New York Times saying 20,000 more drivers are needed for Uber to keep up with that surging demand they have. The public vote with their purse. Right. And the purse is so saying So there are Uber. not enough black cabs to satisfy the demand. What's happening, Steve? Are you, are you all retiring? No, we're not all retiring, Nigel. I mean, obviously, you're taking figures pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Yep. My members had, and, and, and indeed the private hire industry had the worst pandemic ever and no one was moving. The, 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 first, let me tell you why we can use bus lanes. is because yep. we're, we're hailable from the street, so you need to be able to pull into the bus lane. And his report suggests that actually Uber and others should be yeah. Yeah, and his report also suggests that, that we should do away with wheelchair accessibility and no, stuff like that. Well, that. You're, you're suggesting that we use our cabs to take tourist rides. The, the reality is that um, the reason we can use bus lanes is because we're easily identifiable, we can be held by the street, and we know where we're going. The private hire industry used a plethora of vehicles. You say it's the most dangerous aspect. The most dangerous aspect of Maxwell's suggestion is that anybody from anywhere in the world with any form of driving licence, not just a UK or a Northern Ireland licence, but any form of driving licence from anywhere in the world, many places you buy a driving licence, could turn up in the UK, drive on the wrong side of the road to them and take people for harm reward. I mean, frankly, it's laughable. It's a fair point. I don't think it is. No, I really go on. Don't. How many cases do we have, apart from that one American security officer who drove on the wrong side of the road happening in the UK? It's really not that much. And I must say, you are misrepresenting the report no, massively. Maxwell, you said we, we want to get rid of all licensing and regulations. We do not. I argue very clearly we need a robust, transparent... Which you're no, no. I, I, you can Maxwell, what you're arguing, what you're arguing is the service offered by Uber is equal to that offered by London Black Taxis. You're arguing these things, should, these things are equal and therefore should both have the same rights and privileges. I really think the public should make their mind up on that, and that's what they're doing. The thing is, is that... No, they're not, is it black they're not cap- Maxwell. That's no, just the fact. The bottom line is that the London... We have never been busier than we are at the moment. The taxi Correct. industry in London is having a massive boom. Absolutely. And of course, what you say is when Maxwell's arguing it, he's been paid to argue it. And that's the bottom <laughs> is line Is that here. true, Maxwell? Answer the charge. Well, I mean, are you being paid your point? The well, there's is, no doubt, there's no doubt that Steve is acting in his self-interest, and we fully understand and that. And I put my hands up And, and his job is to represent other black taxi drivers. Absolutely. And clearly you're representing an economic interest of the Adam Smith Institute. But I tell you what, chaps, it's a fascinating debate. It's not going to go away. The next time you come back, we'll talk about Sadiq Khan and his role in all of this. Happy to do so. This one will run and run. Gentlemen, thank you both thank you. very much. Indeed. Now, we are having a situation where for the last two years, um, exams, schooling, everything has changed in just the most extraordinary way. It's been very, very difficult for teenagers. But there are many that think that actually doing exams is somehow outdated, is somehow wrong. And Ofqual, the regulator for education, they are suggesting that technology in many ways, can change all of this. That actually, rather than sitting in a drafty examination hall and being asked, you remember this, don't you, to turn over the paper and then to write longhand your answer 
to the questions, be that at GCSE or A-level or whatever else it may be. The suggestion is that actually this could all be done online at home. There's also a concept called adaptive testing, which means depending how you answer the first few questions as to whether the exam gets harder or gets easier. Now, I do struggle to get my head around some of this, but Steve Chalk, who is founder of the Oasis Academy Trust, you've got 53 academy schools, so you've got your hands full in many, many ways. Just that first point, that when you go into that drafty examination hall, a gymnasium that's been used for the purpose or whatever, um, you are expected to write, aren't you? Yes. In longhand. Um, If we turn exams to being done on computers, the skill of writing will be lost completely. Uh, Not necessarily. So I I was listening to you just now, Nigel, talking about taxes. You said the world's changing. Yeah. You you use a sat-nav. You were complaining that your sat-nav doesn't work as well as it should do down by your village. Yeah. Um, people used to say, you've got to use maps. Now, there's a certain skill in map reading that's lost when you've got a sat-nav. Which, is very, which, which sat-nav. actually leaves us poorer for the experience. Yeah, yeah. I've just been sitting in your green room. I yeah. counted the number of, of, of um, computer screens and laptops. There's loads of them oh, in there. What I'm saying yeah. is no. that, that, that the actual basic human skill of being able to write is still quite important, yeah. despite the fact we do less of it. The, the skill of being able to write is important. Now, in actual fact, if you read what Ofqual have said, Ofqual yeah. are the, the, the board that yeah. kind of pushes ahead in terms of exams, they say over the next three years, what we should do is think about the use of digital technology in terms of exams. So yeah. it's not about abandoning everything and move it from over, over here to over there, but it's about incorporating these things. In the pandemic, there's an interesting thing. In the pandemic, because we do have so many schools, we've got 32,000 students. Uh, the pandemic taught us that home education is important but some kids are advantaged and some kids are disadvantaged. So what we did... And that depends on their home circumstances exactly, as much as anything else. Exactly. So what we did is we bought 35,000 iPads. I in remember, fact, yeah. yeah I, in fact, um, Apple said to us it was the biggest purchase <laughs> of iPads ever. But what it means is that every child can learn at home in exactly the same way. But what we discovered was this. They begin learning different things. They begin experimenting, exploring. You could argue that exams in that drafty old hall Mm. are just a memory test. You come in and it's short-term memory, and the better you are at writing in short-term memory, the better you do. What if you could bring a digital device in and use it to explore and to analyse One of the things that employers around here say, as I'm sure you'll know, is that we produce people from schools who aren't able to think. They're not as creative as they should be. They're not as business ready as they should be. it's very difficult to measure those things, isn't it? Which is why I'm so fascinated by this new concept of adaptive testing. Explain all, please. Adaptive testing simply... Well, here's, here's something you should know to start. Perhaps you do. A third of kids every year for years and years since you were young and since I was young have left school feeling that they're absolute failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a real problem that we have as a nation. They, they call it the forgotten third. The kids who are only taught by school, I'm thick. 
But adaptive learning, which you can use digitally, if you answer a question right, and putting it very simply, yeah. it asks you a harder question and a harder question. But if you miss one, it drops down the level. So it's actually more accurately testing your ability and your knowledge than a paper that you sit in front of and you can't do anything about it. But how does an employer look at this? How does an employer measure this? It's all very complicated, isn't it's it? It's not very complicated. Well, Sounds it, might, it. Yeah, but you're not a digital native, are you, Nigel? <laughs> no, I'm I. not. No, no, I'm <laughs> not and i get that i get yeah. that i do get that but 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 the idea i mean look let's just sort of recap on education yeah. you know handwriting as a skill is still necessary absolutely fine good otherwise you know yeah. this this approach of doing yeah. everything on but computer it's not all or nothing is it well, well i hope not that's no. why that's one of the reasons i've got you here to talk about so i, ca- I came in i sat in your green room yeah. with my ipad and someone said oh you brought an ipad is that to prove a point it's not it's because <laughs> i work on an ipad but i also picked up a pen and did yeah. some scribbling classroom and, cr- and, and classroom learning matters mm. Classroom, classroom learning matters, but our, our idea of learning, you'll find that probably even the headmaster, I think you went to Dulwich College. I didn't did. You? Uh, you'll probably find that even the headmaster of Dulwich College, I might be taking his name in vain, but I certainly know the headmaster of Harrow and Eton and Lord Baker, who introduced GCSEs, all say together a view that I totally agree with that the problem with GCSEs and A-levels is they're too narrow they're too rigid what we need is a wider way of testing a a young person's intelligence and a final thought on all of this the forgotten third they might be really good at trades and skills. They, uh, they shouldn't be leaving school feeling like failures. They should be leaving school having been directed towards things they might be good at. And, and we're not doing that. No, and th- exactly. So we've got to measure what's in your head, how you use your hands yes. and what's in your heart. Yeah. You can leave school now I- I- in our society being very good at short-term memory. You can remember the classics, etc., etc. Yep. You can do very well. But who's testing your character, your integrity, your ability to tell the truth? And they're subjective things that are tough to measure, yeah, yeah. but... And introducing uh, digital technology into learning broadens yeah. things out. So you talked about kids that are going to leave uh, school and work with their hands and be engineers, etc. And earn lots of money. <laughs> and they need digital skills to do it, Nigel. Oh, no, they need some, when of course they do. When you get a guy do. to refit your do. kitchen, of you course hope they he do. brings his iPad But they around. don't need nine GCSEs, <laughs> is the point I'm making. Steve, it's a really interesting debate, and I want yeah. you to come back. And we're we're, we're going to keep watching this, and it matters yeah. hugely. Um, I'm also very keen to find out at some point from you in the next couple of months just how much damage has been done to kids over a couple of years. I'd love a lot to done. talk about that. I think it's an important issue. Thank you. Well, sticking for a moment on the education theme, a report... An analysis of London-based journalists shows that 80% of them come from what we can only describe as privileged backgrounds. Now, all we ever hear about is diversity, diversity. But we don't hear anything in journalism about diversity of class. And I think that's a really important thing. And social mobility is one of the themes we want to pursue on this show. I can assure you that at GB News, it is most certainly not 80% that have come from privileged backgrounds. Now, last night, I was talking to Emma Jo Morris about the Hunter Biden laptop, her role. She's at Breitbart now, but she was there at the New York Post. They effectively got censored from putting this stuff out. And for the first time ever on my show, and it's rarely happened here at GB News. It has happened. It's happened at Channel 4 recently too. We lost transmission for a few minutes. This was not a conspiracy theory. We're going to continue. Part two of the Hunter Biden laptop in just a minute.
Good evening. It is Talking Pints. Yes, and we've managed to refine the pint glasses, um, having somebody having nicked the last lot. Now, last night we were in full flow about this extraordinary story about the Hunter Biden laptop. But even more extraordinary than what it revealed is what the reaction to it was afterwards. So there was no conspiracy. It was not the deep state. I absolutely promise you, Emma Jo Morris was in full flight and we lost transmission for the last part of the interview. But I am hoping that she's rejoining me in New York this evening. Emma Jo, are you there? Yes, thank you. We'll have to we'll have to recapture the magic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was going so well. So let's go to where we kind of stopped or part of the transmission stopped. So the Hunter Biden laptop is in your position. You at the New York Times are running big, full front pages on it. Just give us, just remind us in two or three minutes of what that laptop said about Hunter Biden's business interests in Moscow, Beijing, Kiev, and what, that, and what the relationship between those business people was with his father when he was the vice president. Yeah, so I'm so sorry to correct you, but I was at the New York Post I, out here. In, sorry, in right -wing sorry, media. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I got the laptop. I think we got cut around the time that I was saying it was about four weeks to the election. And uh, I was talking with my then editor in chief about what we would cover at the time. I was the deputy politics editor. So my direct I was directly reporting to the editor in chief and she was working with me on this. And um, she says, you know, I know he's a consultant and I even know that he's a sketchy consultant. And I know that he kind of grips off of his family name. Um, you know, I know he has a drug problem. What can we find on there? Find me something on there that's brand new. And, and that will really be something that is is worthy of this drop and worthy of this of this scoop. So. I, I knew that uh, Joe Biden had mentioned, obviously, this was televised and very public. He was bragging about how he had had um, a Ukrainian official fired for investigating Burisma, which was the company that his son was on the board of yeah. at the time. And so I figured maybe I'll find something, you know, more interesting to build on that story that we all already know and that, you know, my audience would be familiar with. So I started to look through the contacts um, and the emails from those contacts of the people associated with Burisma. And I found, uh, which became the first story, I found um, an email that said, thank you for uh, the meeting with your father. So I knew then, okay, Joe Biden now is now involved in this. Um, and I didn't know the extent that he was involved, but I knew that at least Hunter was uh, introducing him to his business partners, which was previously unknown and vehemently denied by Biden and his campaign. He would always say that he has no idea what his son's up to, and that's his business. Um, and that was kind of the plausible deniability that he was using. So that was our first story. That was the front cover that your producers just threw up on screen. Um, and we yeah. had a side, uh, you know, like a sidebar on that story that the White House had been leaking conference calls to Burisma as well via Hunter um, and a proxy that he had hired. So that was the first story. That story was instantly banned on Twitter. Uh, the links were disabled uh, instantly. Uh, accounts were getting banned for sharing the report. The New York Post was locked out of its account. 
And this is not like, you know, a rinky-dink paper in America. You have to understand, this is the oldest paper in America. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the country. It is the fourth largest paper in circulation in America. Uh, this is unprecedented. It was, it was just, it's impossible to overstate how scandalous that was. Um, so, and, and, yeah, and, and the rest of, and, 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 that, and that was the action taken. That was the action mm-hmm. taken by the big social media giants. But what about the reaction of, I mentioned them earlier, the New York Times? What about the reaction of the other press, print and mainstream media, not just the social media giants? What did they do? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is part of the reason why, uh, you know, I have to distinguish myself from the New York Times, who I find just an unserious publication. They, <laughs> they had a great reputation in their day, and now they're kind of lazy um, and a bit neurotic. Uh, you know, the first thing that the New York Times did, specifically, they had their media reporter try to discredit me personally. I had come from working at Fox News, which is another Murdoch-owned corporation, obviously, in the United States. I was formerly a producer there before I was at the New York Post. He tried to say that I was a right-wing operative or something. That was obviously what they were implying. Um, other publications tried to say that the story was Russian disinformation. Uh, Politico, which is, you know, a huge publication in the U.S. and, you know, hugely influential in Washington, um, said that there were 50 former intelligence intelligence officials who uh, think that the Hunter Biden story is Russian disinformation. And then there's a caveat in in like paragraph 10 that says, you know, um, they haven't seen it, but they think so. Very late. Uh, and was, was all of this, Emma J, was all of this because the social media giants, the mainstream media companies had become so utterly partisan in wanting Biden to win and Trump to lose. Is that what this was all about? It would appear. And I don't think it's necessarily a, a, and you know, you understand this very well. I don't think that this is a binary left-right thing. I think that this is an establishment versus anti-establishment thing. Mm. Biden, it's not about Biden, and it's not about him being a Democrat or necessarily even his specific policy positions or opinions. It's about the fact that he represents and he protects the interests of a group of uh, kind of like a gilded class. Um, and they find the opposition, i.e. Trump and his voters, <laughs> yeah. you know, just just beyond like they cannot have power. They cannot have power. They're too stupid, too no. poor, too, what you know, unsophisticated. And Joe too Biden, de- too, too deplorable, too deplorable, yeah. led exactly. by a disruptor. No, I, you know, I get it. I get it. And we saw many similar parallels during Brexit. But let's try and. Uh, Let's try and finish, if we can, with a note of optimism. Is Elon Musk the great white knight hero who is going to restore free speech and open debate in America and across the free world by taking over Twitter and being an example to many others? Yeah, I I hope. You know, and this I said again on your show yesterday before we got cut off. um, He seems to say that. And and it seems like actually this Hunter Biden saga was one of the catalysts that made him say this needs to be taken over and reformed. And it seems that that's what he wants and that's what he says he wants. And I have no reason to not believe him. The thing that I'm concerned about is, as you know very well, and as I experienced myself, it's the second you you try to go up against the establishment um, or whatever you want to call them, the power center that that is, um, they don't just toss you the keys. And I think that he's going to have a lot of pushback and he's going to have to deal with a lot of 
uh, griping, let's say, uh, before he can really accomplish the agenda that he's setting out to do. I agree with that. But if anyone can do it, it is the unconventional, the biggest disruptor in many ways uh, in business <laughs> and the richest man in the world. If anyone can do it, he can do it. I want to say, Emma Jo Morris, thank you very much for your story. Keep doing what you do at Breitbart News. And thank you for sharing that with the British audience. Thank you very much indeed. Well, what an amazing story. It is a truly extraordinary story, a shocking story about the extent to which so-called media, or most of it, uh, became just so political back in 2020. Barrage the Farage, here goes. Mickey says, do you think Biden should be removed from office for his incompetence and his corruption? Well, can't prove his corruption, Mickey, but I can prove, uh, certainly with the evidence that Emma Joe, I mean, New York Post put out, and others, that he absolutely lied to the American public about his son's business partners ever meeting him. And it's clear they did many, many times. He should be removed from office under the 25th Amendment. 25th Amendment, which says those around the president can deem he is not fit to continue with his job. Whenever Trump said something that was considered outrageous, they screamed and shouted the 25th should be moved. And no one does when it comes to Sleepy Joe. I'm asked by Sean, do you think that MP porn, Partygate, Pintgate, etc., just show the failure of ethics throughout society in general? Uh, to some extent, you're right. I think perhaps as a society we have lowered our standards considerably, but I think the truth of it is we don't have the right people in politics. I'd love to see our system opening up, having open primaries, getting different people, we'd get higher quality. I really, truly believe so. Now, Farage at large goes out round the country. Last Thursday, we were down in Rochester in Medway. We had a full house, a great show. Many enjoyed coming along. If you want to join me for a Farage at large, I'm going to be in Hull next Thursday. Going to be in Hull next Thursday, live, Farage at large. Come and see how a TV programme is made. Come and ask me questions directly. Come and take part in the whole thing. GBnews.uk if you want to come to Hull next Thursday. In a moment, it's going to be Mark Stein, who will be as entertaining as ever. I'll be back with you on Monday.